A quick warning, this podcast includes allegations of child sexual abuse, so listener discretion is advised. If any of the details are triggering, please talk to someone. If you're in New Zealand, you can call or text 1737 to speak with a trained professional. How was the court, um, the time in the court like? It was boxed. Just get up in the morning, feed my animals, do this, do that, do that, go to court. Through the autumn of 1993, Peter Ellis was on trial in the High Court for abusing children at the Civic Crèche. Listen to a whole lot of rubbish, go home, cook a meal, go to bed. So there was that part of the day and that part of the day and then there was the rubbish in the middle. Basically how it went. It's 2019 and I've had numerous conversations with Peter since the Crèche's Civic Crèche case kicked off. My job was to stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down and just be there. I mean, I wouldn't, I'd be a pain in the neck now if I was in a courtroom. Peter describes that time of his life kind of nonchalantly, but three decades earlier, he was halfway through the trial, facing 25 counts relating to 11 children. And that's not something anyone takes lightly. I'm Alexander Beezer. And I'm Ali Jones. In this episode, the jury decides the fate of Peter Ellis. This is Conviction, episode 10, Turns. The Crown told the jury Alice intimidated the children by threatening to kill their parents. He warned they'd be burnt or eaten if they told of the abuse. None of those things happened at the crash, and that I'm prepared to go to hell and back again, you know, on behalf of it just didn't happen. The detail that our son has given us is something that he could never um, have known unless it happened to him. We can never know for sure whether it happened or not. That's, that's an impossible question to answer. For seven weeks back in 1993, the courtroom was packed, filled with supporters of both Alice and the complainant families. The press benches were full. Everyone was there to hear the case against Peter Ellis. It's about a year and a half since the first allegation. Midway through May, we're nearly midway through the trial too. The children have given their testimony. A girl says she and Peter Ellis had a bath together. A boy claims Ellis urinated on him 800 he times. He says Ellis gave her an ice block to keep They quiet. were warned they'd be killed if they told. And a familiar lineup of people we've got to know over the course of this podcast. Such as psychiatrist Karen Zelas. It's most important that parents don't in fact question their children. And detective Colin Eade. At one stage I was, uh, yeah, I was in charge of it. And some of Peter's co-workers, including crash supervisor Gay Davidson. Well, you don't even think you're going to deal with something like this, so how do you deal with it when it happens? It's just... it was awful. But there are some other important bits from the trial that we still need to dig into. Like the fact there were no physical signs of abuse. Some of the things that are described... This is psychologist Barry Parsonson. Like having anus penetrated by sticks, burning paper and needles and other things, you know, surely there would be, a child would tell a parent that this had happened. There'd be blood on their underclothes or something that a parent might question. He's long argued the children's evidence was contaminated by the parents and the interviewers. But he also thinks that this lack of physical evidence should have been a red flag for the jury. But that doesn't seem to have intruded into people's understanding of that this child could be making things up. But just like many parts of this case, it isn't that clear-cut. 
Back in court in 1993, the evidence from both doctors didn't categorically prove sexual abuse, but it didn't rule it out either. I did manage to get hold of two doctors who examined the children and gave evidence at the trial. One of them emailed me back saying, Dear Alex, thank you for your interest. But then she writes, My involvement was to examine a few of the children medically. No abnormality was found in any children I examined. That is all I have to say about it, and I would not be willing to make any further comments or judgment. As you will see for yourself, the children's testimonies at that time were debatable and still remain so. All the best. The other doctor is retired now. She said, My feeling is that the medical evidence had very little to add to the case. There is probably nothing more to be said. And she wasn't comfortable speaking any further with me on that. After the medical experts came testimony from police officers, and a big part of that was about proving Peter Ellis could have abused children at the creche, that he had the opportunity to do it. Because one of the weak spots in the prosecution case was how no one saw any of this happening in this busy childcare centre. The whole thing seemed quite ludicrous. This is Rees, a crash parent. He's the guy who felt the case against Ellis was just a witch hunt. So I asked him about his take on the places Peter Ellis could have abused children, out of sight of other staff or parents coming and going. There was precisely nowhere anything that could go on without a whole bunch of people seeing it. Because the, the crash was built in a very open manner. The only places that were even vaguely private was the, obviously the kids' toilets. They were in a, like a little, uh, like in a row. You could see across the front of the toilets, but you couldn't see into the toilets. And those toilets were only little wee rooms. They were just size for a small child. You couldn't really go in there. You could stand in front of it and help the child, um, you know, with their toileting if they needed it. But, um, you know, if, if an adult was attending a child, he would be seen by the other adults in the room outside. So it's just physically impossible for something to actually go on without it being seen by a number of other people. Actually, at this point, let's describe the layout of the crash. Prior to January 1989, the Christchurch Civic Crash was based on Montreal Street in a building that's now a part of the Arts Centre. The crash was on two levels. Upstairs was the nursery or the womble section for the youngest children, and there were two sleep rooms and the supervisor's office. Downstairs was for the older children or the big kids, and they had two playrooms. Both levels had their own kitchen and toilets. After 1989, the creche moved to the Cranmer Centre on Armagh Street. Well, and this is where most of the complaints relate to. It's the creche Reese was describing. Right, and it's in fact the staff room, or was the staff room, of Christchurch Girls High when I was there uh, in the mid-80s. It is or was, it's gone now, but it was a big 19th century brick building, and it was all gables and Gothic architecture. And that was its home until the council closed it four years later. Well, in that building, the creche and all its facilities we're all on the ground floor. French doors opened from an outdoor play area into both the Wombles and the big kids sections. A short corridor ran between these rooms down to a kitchen and a staff room. On the Wombles side, there was also a sleep room, a room with a laundry and toilets and a quiet room. On the big kids side, there was another toilet area. It had an adult toilet, two kids toilets and an open area where the hand basins were. This toilet area could also be entered from the staff room. Well, and directly across from it was the supervisor's office. And at any time, Gay Davidson could have looked directly across the playroom and into the big kids' toilets. He's supposed to have gone into the toilet area 
and defecated on them or urinated on them. This is Gay in 1995 on TVNZ's assignment programme. Supposing he had done that, he then had to take the child out, clean the child up, convince the child that he wasn't allowed to say or do any, say anything, um, have the child all happy and everything before someone else arrived. I mean, it just is inconceivable. It just could never have happened. A number of other organisations also had their offices in the Cranmer Centre. They were upstairs and included the New Zealand Childcare Association, Marriage Guidance Council and THOR, which stands for the Health Alternatives for Women. One of the allegations against Alice was that the child was abused upstairs, in a kitchen opposite the New Zealand Childcare Association training rooms. And did you ever give them witness in the High Court? Oh, yes, I did. We've heard from Bronwyn before. Remember, she was one of Peter Ellis's tutors. She often worked out of the Child Care Association offices, so was called as a prosecution witness. I was supposed to be a witness to show that Peter could have come upstairs, he could have snuck into our training room, pocketed the key and, well, I don't know, got another key done so that he could sneak children into that kitchen that he was going to have put them through the roof, I think. Do you remember what was he supposed to have done on the roof? They, they were looking for access from the, the crash to an oven. He, he put children in an oven, apparently, and so they had to find an oven for him to have put children in. And there was an oven there. It was one of those old, ancient things that, you know, it went. Um, and so they had to try and find a way that he could have gotten the children through the roof and into this kitchen, down, down from the ceiling and into an oven. The Peter, what does it feel like to Peter look at you? It felt yucky in, in the court, and especially since he's not invisible, he's a seeable person, he's noticeable. He couldn't have snuck into the training room to get the key. Yes, it might have been left for two minutes, but um, the likelihood of him sneaking up just at that moment to be able to steal the key, it was beyond rational. As she was often downstairs with the kids herself, Bromwell was asked about Peter's access to the toilets at the crash. Oh, that's right. The other, th the other, there was one other piece of testimony that I did give that I wasn't necessarily unproud of. Uh, I did agree that the toilet door could have been closed when I was not there. At the time it felt, uh, and I think about it afterwards and it still felt ridiculous. Of course the, the toilet door could have been closed when I wasn't there. All sorts of things could have happened when I wasn't there. So Rhys and Bronwyn are both pretty sceptical that abuse could have gone unnoticed. But what the prosecution wanted the jury to hear was that it was possible. The key, the ovens, the toilets might sound unlikely, but were definitely possible. Detective Jenkins took the stand. He described how police had discovered things that might account for much of the children's testimony, like the big old oven in the upstairs kitchen, the one Bronwyn was talking about. There were also ladders and roof walkways and manhole covers that the children might have been taken along and through. So Jenkins presented floor plans and photographs. They take every photograph angle except the one, but that would show that this is one of the busiest areas of the crash, and I'm supposing around the corner sexually abusing children, you know, while, while everyone's 
going backwards and forwards. And the police actually took photographs of every part of that building except this one little bit, which was the toilet and the bit where we did the paints, where all the, where all the work, where all the paper were, so that we had to cross across the toilets. It's missing. Harrison specifically asked in court why those angles weren't photographed. Neville Jenkins said, quote, that would have been an oversight. But while Peter Ellis felt the photos skewed the evidence, they weren't the only thing the jury had to rely on. They were actually able to visit the crash in person. Roughly midway through the trial, the 12 jury members, the judge, the prosecution and defence counsel, some court attendants, Detective Neville Jenkins and Peter Ellis himself, accompanied by a couple of prison officers, all headed a few blocks north to the Cranmer Centre on Armagh Street. Um, hmm. I did actually offer to drive everyone there to prove that I didn't drive. Rob said, no, Peter, thank you for the offer. I said, well, I said, I'm just trying to add you know, a bit of extra ambiance to the whole thing. No one I spoke to had ever seen him behind a wheel. Needless to say, no one took Peter up on his offer of a lift. And this was quite a moment for him. It would be the first time since his suspension 18 months earlier that he'd put a foot back inside the crash. So these people are trying to ascertain whether you know I could be doing things to children. That, and we get there and everything's packed away. So you can't even see what a working crash looks like. From Peter's point of view, the visit went downhill from there. Then we're going up on the roof to see where I've been t taking the children for tea parties. The police were showing the jury what they thought might have happened. That Alice took these small children up to the second floor, out of the window, onto the roof, along a walkway, up and down ladders to two manholes, into the ceiling cavity, and then down a rope into that kitchen. They felt this was all plausible because during the investigation they walked around the Kramer Center with a complaining child. Jenkins said the boy had shown interest in a rooftop catwalk which led to a manhole cover that did open into the kitchen with a big oven. So, while the children might have gotten bits wrong, all the elements of their claims were there. At the beginning of the fourth week of the trial, Karen Zelas took the stand. Upheaval. He felt the thrust beneath his feet. Today she's an award-winning poet. This is her reciting one of her poems on RNZ in 2012. It's called This Is How It Feels. All his memories tumbling from high places. It was written in the wake of the Christchurch quakes. He picked a path through the sharp fragments of his life. Using an earthquake as a metaphor for a devastating emotional upheaval. And asked a shock. But there was only silence. 20 years earlier, during the crash investigation, Zelas was on the council of the World Psychiatric Association. Closer to home, she was president of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists, so she was a big deal in these circles. Can you describe Dr Zelas? Uh, yeah, she was um, slightly nervous, I felt, when I was cross-examining her, and I couldn't quite understand why. She seemed almost um, uh, remote from proceedings, almost. You know, like it felt it felt like she was remote from from life, really. Like she lived in a bubble, almost. Uh, you thought. I didn't feel that she was a, a towering intellect to cross-examine, mm -hmm. but I felt that she was very dogged 
in her in her approach to things like it was a um, it was a belief system that I was cross-examining rather than a scientist. Zelas testified that the complainants were credible and their behaviour was consistent with being victims of sexual abuse. Zelas also provided a list of behaviours linked to child sexual abuse. The behaviours are so spread that it could be any variety of things that's the problem. You know, um, Child one uh, was uh, unhappy once she left the crash. So that was behaviour consistent with being sexually abused at the crash. There was no behaviour that was inconsistent. I mean, that's the nonsense. It got to a stage when, when Dr Karen Zeller said that, um, that it was consistent. This is Peter Ellis on the TV show Coronation. Sexual abuse was consistent if a child was frightened of a spider, frightened of mice, wouldn't eat spaghetti. This was all consistent with sexual abuse. Now, I was going downstairs for, for morning tea with the prison officer of that particular shift, and he says, I must find the wife. And I says, why? He said, my kids have all been sexually abused. Karen Zelas didn't want to be interviewed for this podcast, and to be fair, she agreed in court that many of these behaviours weren't just confined to victims of abuse. But she said finding a cluster of the symptoms was a pretty good indication that abuse had been happening. Her role was crucial, I think, because she was the one, she was the child expert. Journalist Martin van Bainham was in court. She was the child psychiatrist. She was the one that could have said right at the very beginning, look, I don't think we can rely on these kids. So the fact that she was prepared to put her name behind the children's evidence was very powerful. Secondly, she was the one that, that developed some of the techniques for questioning the children. So, uh, yeah, I thought she was, a, she was a major figure in the whole thing. I would very much uh, urge parents, if they can, to be able to hold back until they have formal contact with uh, the agencies that will be investigating these matters. This is Karen Zeller speaking on the Homes TV show again. Nevertheless, if parents do see real changes, what should they do? What action should they take? And, and what is involved in the, the so-called disclosure process? What they should do, I suggest, is note down accurately what it is that they notice at the time so that when they come back to reflect on it later or to talk with someone about it later, it will be very clear, it will be there in black and white. The actual interview process itself is a very gentle one, particularly with young children. It focuses very much on engaging them with play materials and children will often think of it more as a play session than an interview or an interrogation. Now I've seen what happened to the children in those interviews. Yeah, uh, that, 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 was, that, was, that was abuse. That was one of the biggest lot of abuse I ever did see. And it was abuse of power by Colin Ede, it was abuse of power by Gazelas, and it was parents as well. Um, some parents, not all. Some that um, when they struck in an anomaly, uh, you know, that their child said, you know, that um, I was tiptoeing them across the roofs, having parties in the eaves. No one sort of went, uh-huh, come on. I mean, I'm now I'm clever, but Mary Poppins, I was not. In episode five, we heard about a letter that legal researcher Ross Francis had come across. In her letter, Dr. Zelis says that uh, it's clear that Kari's parents elicited disclosures of abuse by Peter Ellis by highly leading questioning, 
In this letter, Dr Zilas warned police about some of the issues she'd discovered during her review of the children's interviews. And she says these facts could make it easy to dismiss the children's statements as having little probative value whether or not they might be accurate. But Karen Zilas didn't mention any of these concerns when she was on the stand in the High Court. And there's another letter from Crown Solicitor Chris Longy to Gerald Nation, the lawyer for the women. I don't think I hold a copy of that letter, but um, I certainly have read it. And in a letter, Longy said that uh, Dr Zelis was engaged by the police in the course of the investigation. Dr Zelis had reviewed the videotapes of Bart Dogwood and Curry Laserback prior to any charges being laid. Dr Zelis advised the police that there were a number of items referred to by each of the children which indicated that what they had disclosed was extremely unlikely to have been led by a parent. Uh, Dr Zelis does not have any particular concerns as regards the number of interviews and the fact that there is continuing disclosure over time of further events is entirely consistent with children who have been sexually abused. So he, Chris Longy is seemingly downplaying the comments that Dr Zelis had made previously and saying that she's got no concerns and that also that what the children have disclosed was extremely unlikely to have been led by a parent. Well, that's completely at odds with what she has said to police. So just to recap, after reviewing two particular interviews, Zelis writes a letter addressing their credibility and risk of parental influence. Then a couple of months later, Chris Longy writes a letter saying Zelis has no concerns. Rob Harrison told me this correspondence was not available to him during the trial. Now I'd like to repeat that we did ask both Brent Stanaway and Chris Longy to take part, but both declined. On Thursday the 27th of May, Rob Harrison opened the case for the defence. Harrison brought in an expert witness from Australia to counter the testimony from Karen Zelas and to introduce the issues around children's memories and suggestibility. Rob Harrison says not one of the 11 child complainants made a spontaneous disclosure before being questioned. He also had some parents and co-workers give evidence. But lawyer Rob Harrison told jury members they'll hear it would have been impossible for the abuse to have happened without a fellow crash worker or a parent noticing a traumatised child or other suspicious pointers. But probably the most important decision Rob Harrison had to make was whether to put Ellis himself into the witness box. So far Peter had just been a figure behind the desk, day in, day out. My job was to stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down and just be there. Although there were odd moments when Peter Ellis couldn't keep his thoughts to himself, like when one of the creche mothers was being questioned. When Stanaway was questioning her, so where did children get ideas about children being hung in cages from? He said, have you never heard of Hansel and Gretel, Mr Stanaway? In a very scathing, dyspeptic Southern Irish voice. Most of the time, though, he remained silent while children, parents and experts pointed the finger. In the end, Rob Harrison felt Peter Ellis had been demonised enough and the jury needed to see that he wasn't a monster. The man at the centre of the Christchurch Crash child abuse case has taken the stand for the first time. Peter Ellis appeared nervous at the beginning of questioning by his lawyer, during which he repeatedly answered no when asked if he'd abused any of the children. We attended court all through his trial as well. It really got serious then. Debbie's mother remembers Peter being questioned. 
I just recall when he was on the stand and, and Stanaway was trying to make him say that the children were lying and he wouldn't he wouldn't say they were lying. Well they weren't lying. It wasn't wasn't deliberate falsehoods they were telling. They weren't telling the truth, but they weren't lying. Of course I want to say, yes, they're lying, but you weren't allowed or Rob was saying, I said, oh, you can't say that, the jury will get upset and I'm thinking. So how lame does it sound? Well, I think they might be mistaken. Under cross-examination, Alice described himself as a person with a flamboyant nature who likes to tease. He said he played boisterous games with some children, one which he calls tickle bash-ups, but he never touched them indecently. I have read the transcript of Peter's evidence to get a sense of how he might have come across to the jury. There was really only one bit that stood out, and that was around, I guess, what the police would call opportunity. So not whether he had the motivation to commit the crime, but the opportunity to do it. Ellis details taking children for daily walks, but says there was only one occasion on which they visited his house, and that was to look at his pets. There was one particular piece in Stanaway's cross-examination where Peter Ellis maybe didn't come off well. Do you want to read this? I mean, I'll be Ellis, you'll be Stanaway. Okay. All right, so Stanaway asked... You knew you could walk out the door with four or five children, say you were going for a walk and no one would know where you were. No, that is not true because I wouldn't do that. It's part of the crash policy. We would automatically say where we were going. There was no means of checking on where you had gone, was there? No, there would be no means of checking. So you could say you were going to the park with five children and go to Hereford Street? That would apply to any person saying they were going to somewhere and go somewhere else. There were five children and myself to say where we went and what things we did. It's amazing rereading stuff that you were a part of 30 years ago. Um, In preparation for my interview with him, Harrison reread some of the transcripts of the trial. I didn't feel that there was a gotcha moment um, in that case. I know that the Crown um, thought that there was, but. What was it for the crime? Yeah, they said that they, you know, whether or not he caught a bus. Initially, Peter Ellis said he walked to work and wouldn't know how long it took to get from the crèche to his house by bus. But later he admitted he did catch the bus, sometimes, if it was raining. As Harrison suggests, the Crown treated this as a bit of a jackpot moment, which somehow proved Peter was a liar. But Harrison didn't see it that way at all. And I look at that and I think, I don't, he wasn't lying. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't people lying. And the thing is, I mean, if you're going to lie, you'd lie about taking them to a house at all. You'd lie about... It's impossible for, the, you know, for me to walk the children from the crate all the way up to 404 Hereford Street and back in the time that I had. But Peter was saying, no, 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 that was possible. <laughs> and I, I remember saying to the jury, um, this man couldn't lie to save himself. You know, he's telling you that he could possibly have done this in physical time. There's no no evidence to tell you that he, this actually ever happened. But here he is saying, well, look, if I wanted to, I could have taken those children to this house, but I didn't do that. Right? And he's, you know, he's not dumb. <laughs> this is not a dumb man. All up, Peter Ellis spent nearly two days on the stand. I've asked Rob Harrison if there were any moments he felt like the case was not going his way. I felt confident that I could do this. But he admits to a few tense moments. There was one time I remember walking out of the court at the end of a day and 
walking away from the court and then this TV3 cameraman um, put the camera in my face with the light on and it was really sort of jarring and um, I remember pushing him, get out, you know, and that was, and it, it wasn't the media that worried me sort of thing, but it was that lack of uh, space just when I walked out of that courtroom that night and, and I just felt very, uh, very bad that I'd done that. Yeah, it was a bad time, very bad time. Finally, after five weeks, the summing up began. Crown Prosecutor Brent Stanaway started. Over four hours he ran through the Crown's case and asked the 12 members of the jury to think very hard about whether Peter Ellis was a convincing witness with his repeated denials of guilt. He brushed away concerns about the less believable testimony from the children, saying the central detail of the abuse was consistent and therefore reliable. Brent Stanaway, in her, when he was summings up to the jury, the children referred to being covered in shit. And I urinated all over them. He changed their evidence in chief when summings up. Now, I don't know whether he, uh, that's where Williamson should have said, well, no, that's not what the children said. So he got it down to, you know, so said, now the reason why the parents didn't see that was because it was just a, you know, a finger wipe of, of, of shit and it was just a drip, you know. That's not what they described. I mean, they described they were, you know, covered in it. Now, of course, again, you're back to either the crash women were in on it or it never happened because you're not going to be cleaning up those kinds of accusations short of taking them to the shower. But the crux of Stanaway's closing address to the jury was that the consistent central details from all of the children made them compelling, believable witnesses and that the charges had been proved beyond doubt. In his summation, Rob Harrison stressed that none of the children had made a spontaneous disclosure of abuse, not one. And with everything they'd heard over the past few weeks, the jury should be left with more than a reasonable doubt. Harrison urged them to bring back verdicts of not guilty on all charges. Then Justice Williamson began his one-and-a-half-hour closing address to the jury. I don't think it was his finest moment. Malcolm Cox, who had kids at the creche, was in court to support Peter Ellis. He had concerns with what Williamson said that morning. I think that he played it for a win for the Crown. He was less than neutral. For instance, when he's talking about reasonable doubt in that sentence, you could either emphasise the word reasonable or doubt. And doubt was the one that he emphasised. Press journalist Martin Van Bainen agrees with Malcolm. I remember saying to somebody after the summing up, and I said, if you read that summing up, you will, you will get the impression that he's been entirely impartial, entirely fair to both sides. But the tone was definitely favouring the Crown. But if you'd read it, you would have said, no, that's, he's covered all the arguments for the defence. He's been perfectly down the middle. I just thought, no, that his tone when he was talking to the jury was, was definitely pro-Crown. Ross Francis, the legal researcher, now he's someone who did read those court transcripts, but he definitely wasn't convinced that they were down the middle. At one point during his summing up, he... He said that there may be good reasons 
such as those I think outlined by Dr Zelis as to why the complainants, the victims of these offences, may have refrained from making a complaint at the time. So he's actually referring to the victims um, even before the jury has decided the outcome of the case. Um, so he clearly believed that the complainants had been sexually abused. Um, and, and yes, his, his summing up may well have influenced um, the jury. The judge also spent considerably more time summing up the prosecution case than the defence case, um, and he didn't criticise any aspect of the prosecution case. Lawyer Nigel Hampton QC, now remember, he's the guy Harrison tried unsuccessfully to get on the case. He mentions another imbalance. The jury, when they retired to consider their verdicts, took with them into the jury room so that they could use in their deliberations the transcripts of the edited interviews of the children. The edited video interviews and the transcripts alongside them have been used as the children's evidence-in-chief. That's their story originally told to the jury. On that evidence, they were then cross-examined by Rob Harrison. That cross-examination question and answer would be recorded in the trial transcript itself, in the notes of evidence. But those notes of evidence containing Rob Harrison's cross-examination of each of those children didn't go into the jury as well. So the jury got a one-sided view, a one-dimensional view of the case. Now that seems to me to be entirely unbalanced. If you're going to allow one part in, you've got to allow the other part in, or nothing goes in. Either it's all or nothing. Good evening. Guilty or not guilty, the verdict nobody yet knows. Our reporter Raywin Rash is outside the High Court. Raywin, what's the latest? Well, the jury has just gone for dinner. They're expected back at about 8 o'clock. But we understand that the Justice Department has booked a hotel and that could mean that the jury are going to sleep on their decision again tonight. As they headed into the third day of deliberations, one newspaper reported obvious tension between the defence and prosecution supporters who were camped at opposite ends of the court. I was in the entrance way. I couldn't get into the actual room, but I was just standing there with lots of parents who were really, really angry. Crash teacher Susanna recalled the mood outside the courtroom. And they were, yeah, it was very, it felt the police were there because they thought things were going to kick off. And I felt like they could too. And yeah, it was really tense. And we tried to gather around, trying to figure out what to do. And it got, people were saying things and shouting out and, you know, making threats, yeah. The jury spent roughly 18 hours considering all the evidence, returning at least once to review parts of the videotaped interviews. Peter Ellis spent those three days in holding cells. I mean, the way the way the thing had been framed, the way things were going, um, I expected them all to be guilty. You know, um, the way Williamson had run it, I expected it to be guilty. On Saturday, the 5th of June, 1993, at 4pm, New Zealand's biggest child sex abuse case to date finally ends. There's been a decision in the Peter Ellis child abuse case in the High Court in Christchurch at the High Court, Paula Penfold. The jury has just delivered its verdict after deliberating since Thursday afternoon. When the verdicts came in, for example, I stood and they started off with guilty, 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 and so you thought, oh, 
And then it started going not guilty, not guilty, guilty, not guilty, not guilty. And, you, and then you could, and you could hear gasps over here behind, you could hear... And you just kept going through your mind. Just said, Hold it, this is, this has gone a bit bizarre here because there was... A, in fact, there was a lot of not guilties coming through on these ones. Um, and you could hear these dismayed sounds. Now, whether the parents knew who, who, who it belonged to or not, I don't know. So it was a bit bizarre, um, you know, trying to sort of ascertain what was going on. And I'm literally not ahead, my legs locked, so I wasn't going to fall over and I wasn't registering. Nothing on my face anyone could draw or take a picture of. Peter Hugh McGregor Ellis was found not guilty on nine of the charges. But guilty on 16 counts of sexual abuse in relation to seven children. Outside the courtroom, this TV3 news footage shows his fellow teachers were quick to offer their support. I'm shaking like a leaf. I feel like it's, it's a mess. Half of me thought it might have to be because of the system, but it's all wrong and it has to be corrected. Just the way I've seen the so-called justice system work, which seems to have very little to do with justice. It's wrong, and hopefully his lawyer will appeal. Peter Ellis had strong memories of his lawyer's reaction. So whether Rob thought, thought that you know, he was expecting them to go guilty, 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 guilty for the whole lot, or not anyway. I mean, he, by that stage, he looked like a bag of assholes. He just looked absolutely shagged beside himself. And he was, sure as I know. I mean, he, I saw him once again down in maximum security with Nigel Hampton. Um, so uh, Rob turned up. And literally, he had two satchels underneath his eyes. I mean, bruised. I mean, he was devastated, I suppose, would be the word for it. And Peter's own reaction? In the 2003 Queer Nation interview, he remembered just feeling bemused. I expected it to be sorted out when, when the first allegation was made, I do not have a black penis. And that was the allegation, that it steamrolled on. I thought at least at some stage it would get stopped. It didn't get stopped at depositions. It didn't get stopped at pretrial. And it didn't get stopped by 12 people. The night before the verdicts came back, on his last night of freedom, Peter Ellis had agreed to an interview with press reporter Martin van Beinen. I'd asked for the paper to be given to me for free and I would give him a story. So the last night I was out home, Martin van Beinen came round. So the front page of the press, you know, with, with, was this appearance, please, with guilty verdict, innocent until the day I die, was the next. Um, and I think it was Hampton who said, he said, I got an extra two years for, 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 for managing to sneak that article. <laughs> article into the out the door on june the 22nd 1993 childcare worker peter ellis was jailed for 10 years Later, peter ellis was sentenced to 10 years in About jail peter ellis's 10 years sentence this morning leads with a 10-year prison sentence handed down to former at the sentencing justice williamson addressed peter ellis this is an actor reading his words the jury were in a unique position in this case Unlike almost all of those who have publicly feasted off this case by expressing their opinions, the jury actually saw and heard each of the children. They also heard your evidence and that of the other former childcare civic creche workers. The jury disbelieved you. 
they believed the children, and I agree with that assessment. Outside court, Peter Ellis's mother Leslie immediately rejected the court's findings. My feeling is as that of all of Peter's family is that he is completely innocent of these charges and we will spend the rest of our lives, if need be, getting him out of prison. For the children and their families, the sentence brought more complicated feelings. The first parent to speak out about Peter Ellis's 10 years sentencing says he finds it difficult to feel any emotion. The father, whose child gave evidence in the case, says the long court process has worn him down. However, he says his child is delighted. The father, whose voice has been disguised to protect his identity, won't comment on the 10-year jail term, but says that every day since Ellis's conviction, his child has asked when Peter will go to jail. The sentencing just re represents the end of a process that's been going on, not just for the months of the trial or the depositions hearing or the nearly two years of the investigation, but it's actually the end of also years of behavioural problems, etc., with our child that uh, we had no, couldn't, couldn't make any sense of. While Peter faced a decade of imprisonment, for the complainants there was a sense of liberation, of vindication. It was total relief. And most importantly, it was the children we believed. It's just such a great victory for the children. He's never going to be caring for children again. The children put him away. But the Peter Ellis case would be back before the courts barely a year later. And it's not over yet because uh, I'm sure there will be plenty of people, media, etc., who will continue to feast on our pain and suffering. Some of the stories told at the first trial would change. I'd seen that child give evidence. She was the oldest one, and I thought she was the most credible. And, as you'll hear in our next episode, Alice's life in prison would turn up some surprises of its own. My family came to see me, and I wouldn't let them hug me or touch me, because uh, that would have been, uh, if I'd cried, that would have been the end of me. Word's gone out that Alice is brown bread, prison slang for dead. Convicted child abuser Peter Ellis has publicly expressed fears for his life. Thanks for listening to Conviction, the Christchurch Civic Crash Case, hosted by Ellie Jones and Alexander Beezer. Conviction was made by Monsoon Pictures International, with support from RNZ and New Zealand On Air. The series was written and produced with help from Aliki Siantolis, Liz Garten and Tim Watkin. Blair Stackpole was the audio engineer. The voice actors in this episode are Christina Persico and Jeremy Rees. Thanks go out to RNZ's commissioning team, Kay Elmers and Tim Burnell, for giving this project the green light, and to Hingyi Kong for designing the webpage. And to Nataonga Sound and Vision for help with some of the archival audio, as well as MediaWorks, Discovery, Getty Images, TVNZ and the Livingston Family Trust. The key image for the series is courtesy of North and South. Conviction can be found on the podcast page of the RNZ website. It's also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and iHeartRadio. Follow the series so you don't miss an episode. Music